I'm your host, Anna Danino, and welcome to episode 22 of the Crime Bistro podcast. This show gazes into the thrillingly twisted world of true crime, examining real cases while we share in a passion for crime and coffee alike. For this episode, I'm enjoying a hot hazelnut latte, so grab yourself a fresh brew and let's get into the disappearance of Jennifer Kessie. 24-year-old Jennifer Kessie was a happy, successful, well-loved young woman at the time that she went missing on Tuesday, January 24th of 2006. She had recently received a well-deserved promotion, had just returned from a wonderful long weekend with friends and her long-distance boyfriend, and she sounded absolutely thrilled on the phone with her mother only the day before she disappeared without so much as a trace. The police investigation turned up almost no viable leads in their search for Jennifer, which has led to some extremely unique circumstances in this case, as the family themselves, along with a private investigator, have taken over for the authorities. There is currently no law enforcement agency responsible for Jennifer's disappearance, and her family is working hard to find answers for their beloved daughter and to keep her story alive until they can find justice and closure. Jennifer was born on May 20th of 1981, and she grew up in Tampa, Florida, she was known for being very close to her family and her friends, and her father, Drew Kessie, has even said, quote, She is daddy's girl. She's not afraid to talk to myself or my wife about anything, end quote. Her immediate family consisted of her father, Drew, and mother, Joyce, as well as her brother, Logan. She was also very smart, even as a young child, and was speaking in sentences at only a year old. She did really well in school, had many friends, and was very involved, as well as very curious and always willing to learn. She graduated from Vivian Gaither High School and attended the University of Central Florida, where she was a member of Alpha Delta Pi. She graduated in 2003 with a degree in finance and was offered several jobs straight out of school. She decided to accept a position at a resort called Westgate Resorts, where she fared extremely well, receiving three promotions within her first year. Jennifer and her boyfriend Robert, or Rob Allen, were in a long-distance relationship. At the time, she was living in Orlando, and he was living in South Florida in Fort Lauderdale, which was about a three-hour drive. She was living in a condominium located at Mosaic at Millennia Condominiums, next to the mall at Millennia in Orlando, Florida, and this was the first property that she had ever purchased on her own, which was a very big accomplishment for her. The area around her condo was considered to be fairly sketchy, and her parents were pretty uneasy about it but they had taught Jennifer to be hypervigilant and very careful. They were extremely careful people in general, considering that they had been robbed at gunpoint many years earlier while they were living in New Jersey. Jennifer always took extra precautions, like carrying her keys in between her fingers in case she needed to use them to defend herself, and always answering the phone when her parents called. Because of ongoing renovations in her complex, Jennifer had told her parents that there were constantly construction workers everywhere, which made her really nervous, and when she came home during her lunch break, she would keep her front door open while she was on the phone with someone so that there was somebody to hear what was happening in the background. Despite all her precautions, however, it only takes a second for something terrible to happen, and unfortunately, Jennifer was not an exception. When Jennifer went missing, she was only 24 years old. The weekend prior to Tuesday, January 24th of 2006, Jennifer had spent time in St. Croix with her boyfriend and some other friends, and the two of them had flown both there and back. On Monday, January 23rd, Jennifer left Rob's home in Fort Lauderdale and drove directly to work without first stopping home as she usually did. She called her mother during this drive, and she said, quote, 
Jen shared every detail about the trip. She was on a cloud, end quote. At the time, she was working at Central Florida Investments Timeshare Company, where she was a finance manager. She had actually recently been promoted at the company, and with her new home and success at work, Jennifer's mother, Joyce Kess, has said, quote, she was just really happy, end quote. She left work that night at approximately 6 p.m., walked out of the building, and wished her boss a good evening, saying that she would see them in the morning. That night, Jennifer spoke to her mother and later her best friend and her boyfriend over the phone, as she usually did, but that would be the last time anyone has seen or heard from Jennifer. The last phone call she made was the one to her boyfriend at 9.57 p.m. on that Monday night, and apparently the call did not go well, as Rob had said, quote, we had a disagreement, end quote. The long distance was taking a little bit of a toll on their relationship. Despite this, however, he said that Jennifer seemed normal on the phone, only tired but otherwise fine. And Jennifer was a person who had pretty solid routines. She and Rob called each other every day while driving to work in the morning and every night before going to bed. Since they had a long-distance relationship, they were only seeing each other on weekends and on holidays. Because of this, those close to Jennifer were extremely concerned when she didn't show up for work that next Tuesday morning, which was the 24th. She would always have called to let someone know if she was going to be late for work or a meeting, so this was really unusual. And she did have a meeting planned that morning for 11am, so this was, again, completely out of character. This quote from Joyce Kessie is particularly telling, quote, Her cell phone that she had since she was 16 years old went to voicemail for the first time. That is how we knew something horrendous had happened, end quote. On the morning of the 24th, Jennifer and Rob had not spoken, so he called her at work and was told that she hadn't arrived yet. Her family was almost immediately called at around 11 a.m. to see if they knew where Jennifer was, and they tried their best to reach her at her condo, on her cell phone, and on her computer, but got no response. The police were notified, and the reaction to all of this was incredibly quick, which is a nice change of pace when looking into cases like this. Within two hours of Jennifer not showing up for work, her family and the police knew that she was missing and her disappearance was being acted upon. When the family and police arrived at Jennifer's condo by mid-afternoon, everything seemed completely normal and in place. Her bed had been slept in and she had obviously taken a shower since there was a wet towel and the shower walls were still wet. She also had a couple of outfits laid out on her bed that she was probably choosing between. Usually, she left for work between 7.30 and 7.45 a.m. each day, which means that it was likely around that time that she was lost at home. The only things missing were her phone, keys, and purse, as well as a particular pair of pumps that she was excited about wearing, which further suggested that she had made it out of the home safely. It should be noted that although all the evidence strongly suggested that nothing bad happened to Jennifer in her actual home, the condo itself was never processed as a crime scene by Orlando police. By 4 p.m. on that same day, family and friends of Jennifer had made flyers and were distributing them around the area of her condo, holding out hope that they would be able to find her before sundown. When there was still no sign of Jennifer by that night, the police officially declared her a missing person at around 9 p.m., and the media started reporting on her case. Since that day, there has been no word from or sighting of Jennifer, and her bank accounts have remained untouched and her cell phone turned off. Later attempts to ping her phone were unsuccessful, which means that someone must have removed the battery so that it couldn't be traced. Two days later, on Thursday, January 26th, the police were informed that Jennifer's car, a 2004 black Chevy Malibu, had been found abandoned in a condo complex 1.2 miles down the same road from where she lived. 
Someone had seen a photo of the car on the news and noticed a similar vehicle in that complex, which ended up being Jennifer's. The car was in the Huntington on the Green Condominiums at the corner of Texas and Americana Ave in Orlando, Florida, and this was considered to be a high-crime area, as was most of the area around Jennifer's condo. Security video showed a suspect pull into a visitor's parking space, wait 32 seconds, exit Jennifer's car, and then walk away, never looking back. And this footage was from 12 o'clock noon on January 24th. This person is believed to have been a male and was dressed in workman's clothes, but they have never been identified. They appear to have tied back hair and a thin build, but it is really hard to tell from the footage. The surveillance video took a photo every three seconds, and each time this person's face was obstructed by a fence post. Michael Toretta, a former federal agent and a private investigator later hired by the Kessie family, has said, quote, This person holds the key to solving the case, end quote. The police did look into the video footage as much as possible, even going so far as to tap NASA to enhance the footage, but the only thing they were able to determine was that the person was between 5'3 and 5'5. By some twisted form of luck, each step that this person took protected their face from view. According to the Fox News investigative unit, evidence photos they obtained suggested that a violent struggle took place on the hood of the car, and police files have also revealed that authorities immediately suspected a physical assault on the hood. Drew Kessie, Jennifer's father, told Fox News, quote, It looked like someone was thrown down on top of the hood, arms spread out and then dragged back almost like off the hood to the point where you can almost see fingers scribbling down the hood, end quote. Jennifer did have some valuables that were left in the car, most notably a DVD player, so police do not believe that this crime was motivated by robbery or a carjacking, but that the target was Jennifer herself. Bloodhounds were able to trace a scent from where the car was found back to her own complex before losing Jennifer's scent right in front of her own property. The car itself was also analyzed at the police crime lab, uncovering only two pieces of possible physical evidence, a latent print that was deemed too small to be of any help, and a small amount of DNA. Police also had Rod look at the car to see if he noticed anything that they might not, and he noted that the seat was in a different position, and that it was further back from where Jennifer usually had it set. One of the only real pieces of physical evidence was found by a couple in December of 2008, who discovered a container of pepper spray attached to a mail key that belonged to Jennifer, but law enforcement was extremely slow in accepting this as evidence, finally accepting it in January of 2009. The Kessies were immediately very involved in the search for their daughter, moving into her condo to be close to the investigation. Those who were close to Jennifer were looked into initially, including Rob and Jennifer's brother, but they both checked out. An ex-boyfriend of hers was also looked into, but ultimately ruled out, as well as a co-worker who had unsuccessfully pursued a romantic relationship with Jennifer, who was also found unsuspicious. Jennifer's parents told the police that Jennifer had complained to them about the workers at the building who occasionally made her feel uncomfortable. Some of them had done work in the condo only a week before the disappearance. Six months after she went missing, Detective Joel Wright became the lead investigator, and he developed a theory of what had happened. Quote, I believe Jennifer got ready for work. She showered, got dressed, went outside of her condo, locked the door on the way out, and made it as far as her car. After that, I believe she was abducted, end quote. Almost three years after her disappearance, Detective Wright decided to get a fresh look at the case and started interviewing people. 
He spoke with a former housekeeper at the condo complex, and when he showed this woman the security video of the unidentified person who had Jennifer's car, she told him it could be a man she knew from the complex known as Chino because of his hair, clothing, and the way that he walked. This was the first time Chino's name had been brought up. He was a former maintenance worker and was one of the workers who did some repairs in Jennifer's condo a week before she went missing. He had lived in another building in the complex, and Detective Wright also found an anonymous crime line tip reported during the first week of the investigation, suggesting that Chino was involved. Detective Wright found Chino serving time for a statutory rape charge, and on March 18, 2009, he interviewed him in prison about the time that he worked in Jennifer's condo. Chino told him, quote, everything was normal, I don't have any idea what happened to her, end quote. He also took a polygraph test on that day, which he passed. In 2010, Detective Wright was reassigned, and the Kessies grew more and more frustrated with the Orlando Police Department's investigation as time went by. The family has stated that the police largely withheld information about the investigation from the family, and that outside of a two-page document, the police have had little contact with them about progressions in the case. In 2016, after 10 years had passed since Jennifer was last seen, she was declared dead by the state of Florida. In 2018, the Kessie family sued the Orlando Police Department for all of the records to date in Jennifer's case, completely frustrated with the police mishandling of the investigation. This was unprecedented for missing persons cases, and an agreement was reached where the Kessies received about 16,000 pages of records and 67 hours of video and audio tape. This agreement also made it so the Orlando Police Department was no longer leading the investigation. Instead, it would be continued by the Kessies and a private investigator. Michael Toretta is a private investigator who works for the Kessies on Jennifer's case. He says that he learned about 10 months after Jennifer disappeared, someone was seen dumping a rolled-up piece of carpet into a lake not far from her condo. This may seem irrelevant, but it stuck out to him because on the day Jennifer went missing, there were workers laying down carpet in the apartment across the hall from her condo. In November of 2019, local police used a dive team to search the lake where the witness had seen the carpet dumped. They spent two days searching but did not find anything. Michael Toretta said, quote, This is something that is haunting me. Until we can find that carpet and see what's in it, we need to follow up on that particular lead, end quote. His current theory is that up to 10 construction workers were living in an empty apartment just across from Jennifer and that one or more of those workers had abducted her. The complex was undergoing a huge renovation being converted from apartments to condos, and many construction workers were living in empty apartments at the complex during this, which is what Jennifer's father mentioned was making her really uneasy. In addition to this, because there were so many workers, gates were often left open for people to go in and out during the day, and the complex had zero security cameras. Interestingly, Toretta spoke to six other women who were all also uncomfortable with the situation. A woman named Colleen said, quote, When I would come home from work, there would be a large group of men outside drinking, and whenever I would have to walk past them, there would be a little bit of comments or just a lot of uncomfortable stares. It wasn't a great feeling. I didn't like it, end quote. Unfortunately, if it was one of those workers living in a vacant apartment who harmed Jennifer, tracking them down, according to Michael Toretta, is fairly impossible since there was never any lease agreements. There is no single person of interest or suspect that has been named in this case, 
However, there are a few theories that have risen among the lack of leads. Obviously, Rob was looked into as her boyfriend at the time, but he was quickly ruled out, so I don't believe there's anything that makes him look suspicious in this case. The construction workers is, in my opinion, the most convincing theory, especially because Jennifer had expressed her own concerns about their presence, as well as other women in the complex having the same uneasiness. They would have known Jennifer's routine because it was the same every day. They would have known that she lived alone, and they did frequently catcall her, according to her father. They are just extremely difficult to investigate, both because there were so many different people, but many of them were also undocumented, and only about a hundred were able to be identified and interviewed by police. This theory is also supported by the fact that dogs were able to trace Jennifer's scent from her car to the bushes right outside her building. A random carjacking is another theory that has been brought up, but since there were valuables left in the car, this doesn't seem at all likely, and police discounted it very quickly. As was briefly mentioned earlier, police did interview an ex-boyfriend of Jennifer's, a man named Matt. He was spotted drinking at a bar across the street from Jennifer's complex only the night before she went missing, and during an interview with police, he did admit that he was upset about their breakup, and he was upset about her recent trip with Rob. He offered to take a polygraph, and police didn't even administer one, not finding enough evidence to tie him to Jennifer's disappearance. Notably, however, Jennifer's brother, Logan, also firmly believes that he is innocent. The other man who police considered was Jennifer's creepy co-worker named Johnny Campos. Jennifer's father said she complained about him several times, saying that he had made multiple passes at her. Reportedly, he came to work late on the 24th and was acting really nervous pacing around the office. His explanation for being late was an unverified traffic ticket, but he definitely could have gone to Jennifer's condo and gotten away with it. Since he was a supervisor, he was not required to keep a time card. There are several things that make him look really bad in regard to Jennifer's case. Firstly, he was married, but he continued to pursue her. Another co-worker of Jennifer's, a man named Adam, has said that a few days before the 24th, Johnny had been upset that Jennifer was dating Rob, and on January 23rd, someone overheard him talking to Jennifer, saying that he was upset about the vacation she had gone on with Rob. Additionally, the day after Jennifer disappeared, Johnny told this co-worker Adam that Jennifer was, quote, likely eaten up by alligators already, end quote. Despite all of this, police say that there is no indication Johnny had anything to do with Jennifer's disappearance. However, this is definitely up there with the construction workers theory for most people familiar with the case. Currently, there is no law enforcement agency responsible for looking for Jennifer Kessie, so the burden has fallen on her family and they are desperately seeking help. Their tip line can be reached directly at 941-201-4009. And they also have a GoFundMe set up to finance their investigations, which is under the name Help Us Find Jennifer Kessie. Jennifer's family have dedicated over 15 years now to the search for their daughter and for the truth about what happened to her on January 24th of 2006. Joyce Kessie has said, quote, the hole in our heart is forever there until we have an answer, end quote. Now that the case files are at their disposal, they are more determined than ever and are striving to keep Jennifer's story alive until they can know where she is and who was responsible for her disappearance. January of 2022 marked the start of 17 years without Jennifer for them, which must be absolutely heartbreaking, but their strength and dedication to bringing Jennifer home somehow is unwavering. 
The family has created a website for Jennifer, which will be linked in the show notes for this episode, as well as a Facebook titled Find Jennifer Kessie, where they post updates and photos of her. For their sake and for Jennifer's, we can only hope that the answers are not far from being uncovered, and crucially, we can keep Jennifer's story from being forgotten. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Crime Bistro Podcast, and if you're interested in learning more about the disappearance of Jennifer Kessie, all of the sources are listed in the show notes at crimebistro.com, as well as the link to Jennifer's website. If you have a theory or a comment of your own to share, feel free to head over and visit the podcast on YouTube or on Instagram at Crime Bistro Podcast to leave a comment and see some behind-the-scenes updates on the episodes to come. With that, this story is coming to a close, so thanks again, and as always, until next time.